and welcome to Ipsodix, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Heidi K. Brown, Director of Legal Writing and Associate Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. We will discuss her book, The Introverted Lawyer, A Seven-Step Journey Toward Authentically Empowered Advocacy, which is published by the American Bar Association. So welcome to the program, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for getting in touch. I'm really glad you reached out to me uh, and told me about your book, which I hadn't seen because I really enjoyed reading it. And I actually found it really helpful in thinking about my own experiences as a law student, lawyer, briefly, and and now law professor. And, you know, I'm already thinking about how I might be able to use some of the ideas you talk about in your book to be a, a better and more effective law professor. So thanks so much. Um, well, so for listeners who haven't read the book yet, or they, they should, I wonder if you could start by just describing briefly what you mean by an introvert versus an extrovert. In other words, sort of how are those two personality types different? I mean, how, how should we think about them in sort of a sort of paradigmatic sense? It's a great question because in our American society, we tend to lump labels onto quiet people. We, we confuse labels about introversion, shy people, socially anxious people. Sometimes we might consider introverts to be aloof or antisocial, but that's really not accurate at all. So what helped me was to first learn, as you asked, the difference between introversion and extroversion. And then the second part of this is what's the difference between introversion and shyness and social anxiety. But to your question, the difference between introversion and extroversion is really just the ways that individuals, different individuals, process information, questions, stimuli, and then also the way we rekindle energy. So introverts, hence the you know, internal or in, inside of us, we process information and questions and answers, and multiple competing stimuli internally. So when someone asks us a question or we're in a really highly stimulating environment, we might appear on the outside to be slower to respond or jump into the fray, but really we are vetting and testing our ideas, our words, our language, our potential solutions to problems internally. Whereas every do that externally. So it can seem like an extrovert is ready and raring to go because they they vet their ideas by speaking, whereas introverts do that internally by thinking. The other major difference between introverts and extroverts are the way we rekindle energy. So an introvert can be can be very social and energetic and outgoing in certain circumstances, but I know from personal experience we hit a wall and and eventually we think, okay, now it's time for me to retreat to quietude or the solitude of my office or my apartment or, or my car, whereas extroverts gain energy from social engagement or professional interaction. Mm. Well, so how does this distinction or why is this distinction between introversion and extroversion important to legal education and the practice of law? And more specifically, I mean, I guess like, why is it that both of those areas can be more challenging in some ways uh, to introverted people? So as an introverted law student and former lawyer and now a law professor, 
I always felt like I had to fake this extroverted personality. So as a, as a law student, I was incredibly quiet, but I was always prepared. I'd done the reading. I had done the work. I loved the research and writing aspects of law school, but being cold called in class and, and being put in scenarios like oral arguments or simulations, I faltered a bit because I felt like I had to fake extroversion. Whereas now I realize as a law professor and having, having been an attorney for 15 years trying to fake extroversion, I realize my assets are actually my quiet thinking and my creative problem solving and writing. But in my opinion, the way we teach law often, and certainly the way that I was trained in multiple law firm environments, very aggressive litigation firms, which I loved the work. But it's not always conducive to bringing out the strengths of quieter people in our profession. So my whole approach is to try to draw attention to and highlight the very valuable strengths that quiet individuals bring to our profession, and then try to encourage law professors and and office managers or, or litigation attorneys to approach the way we train our quieter individuals a little bit differently so they can have that time to think. And, and we really, sometimes I'm so amazed, often I'm so amazed when my quietest student brings the most insightful analysis to a legal problem. And I personally feel like in our profession, we tend to promote the extrovert ideal a bit too much, and, and we overlook the assets that quieter individuals bring to the profession. Yeah. So I mean, one thing that, that occurred to me was, I mean, I wondered to what extent you think this sort of promotion of extroversion in legal education and legal practice at the expense of introversion is something conscious and intentional, or is it in some ways kind of thing, something that people take for granted and don't really think about? I think it's something that we just don't think about. And we're used to attorneys thinking on their feet, having an answer ready to go, whether it's necessarily the right answer <laughs> is not always apparent, but we, the way we promote the ideal of attorneys in film and television, it's always the gregarious, outgoing, confident, sort of podium-pounding lawyer in the way we're portrayed in pop culture even. But in reality, the, the work we do as lawyers requires quietude. We, we read, we have to analyze complex statutes and case law and regulations and, and client facts and make sense of that. And introverts are very well situated for that. And I used to write incredibly long briefs in, in my work. I was a construction litigator and I needed that solitude. I needed to be able to close my door and do that work. But there was a lot of times this pressure to be out in the halls, sort of bantering about the issues and and debating the, the issues that were in play in our cases. But the, the times that I could really take that quiet time, sit in the library, read through the statutes and the case law and the contracts and make sense of the client's legal problem, it was those moments where I, as an introvert, did my best work. That's not always promoted or highlighted as well as I believe it could be in legal education, first of all, but certainly in law practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it also struck me that in a lot of ways, it seems like this tendency to encourage kind of stereotypically extrovert type 
activities at the expense of more kind of introverted, self-oriented, quieter activities could also be a problem pedagogically and in kind of a practice sense and in in, 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 the, in the sense that we're sort of encouraging, we're, we're sort of subtly identifying the kinds of skills that are valued as opposed to the kinds of skills that aren't valued. And it seems like a lot of the things you're describing are actually really important to both learning how to become a good lawyer and to practicing effectively as a lawyer as well. Yes, I see this a lot when I hear law professors talking about the value, the perceived value of cold calling or the Socratic method in class. And, and while I'm not saying that we should ditch that entirely, those types of scenarios in which we put students on the spot without that time for reflection, in, in my opinion, do not always draw out the, every student's best work. So I, I know from personal experience I was always prepared for class. I had always done the reading. I joked that I had like highlighter ink all over my hands from highlighting my, my books and I had flashcards and note cards. But the second I was cold called in my, in my classes, my brain would, would freeze. And the, the, the fight, flight, or freeze response is very real for some of us. This, this goes a little more into the shyness and social anxiety distinction. But even for me as an introvert, I really had done the work. But the pedagogical tool of cold calling me was not conducive to me engaging in a, in a Socratic dialogue in a way that I could show that I'd done the work. And I've seen this. I, I teach legal writing, so my classes, class sizes are much smaller. And I, I've tried really hard to create a, an environment in my classroom where my quieter students can take that reflective time and participate in different ways. And I'm always so wonderfully surprised and and pleased when I see the work that my quiet introverted students bring to the table either through follow-up emails or posting in forums or sending an article to me that I could share with the class and then I can set up that conversation for the introverted or quiet student to really lead a class discussion but after they've had that time to reflect and think and come up sometimes with a solution that nobody else in the class came up with. Mm. Well, so one thing that I found really interesting about the book as well that I hadn't thought about before, but made perfect sense when I read about it was the way in which there's sort of, as you described earlier, sort of different kinds of introversion and different ways in which it expresses itself. And, you know, for students who might be struggling with these issues, I mean, I wonder if you could talk briefly about, you know, what those kinds of expressions are, how they differ from each other, and sort of how students can kind of make sense of their own experiences. Sure. And this might be a good point for me to explain what I mean by the difference among introversion and shyness and social anxiety, because some quiet students might not know which of those categories they fit into. So introversion, as I described previously, is just the way that some of us need time to process the information, questions coming at us, or multiple competing pieces of information or stimuli. But shyness and social anxiety are, are different. And I personally grappled with shyness and social anxiety on top of my introversion. But until I started learning and researching and understanding the difference, I didn't know which situation was affecting me in different lawyering scenarios or law school scenarios. So shyness and social anxiety are where 
for some of us, a fear of judgment or criticism kicks in. And a lot of times this could be just stuff we've experienced over childhood or throughout different educational experiences, but we almost censor ourselves because we're afraid of, of looking not as smart as our, as our colleagues in class or in, in the law firm environment or, or not or disappointing our professor or looking foolish in front of our professor because we can't think in that moment as quickly as some of our peers. Very different from introversion, where we just rationally think, we naturally think and internalize problem-solving situations in our in our minds before we take them prime time, I like to, I like to say. In, in writing my book, I came across this one study in which introverts and extroverts actually used different pathways in our brains to process information, and the introverts use a longer a neurological pathway to process information than extroverts do. So it's actually science <laughs> that, that supports this. Um, but for me, it was trying to distinguish situations in law school and in law practice in which it was just my introversion that, that necessitated more time to process an objection, for instance, in a deposition or an answer to a, a partner's question, or was it a fear of judgment by my opposing counsel or my client even, or the judge? And so I think it's important for students to try to identify which of these different phenomenon, phenomena are they struggling with in the classroom or in a simulation or in the work environment. And then there are techniques we can do to, to start to amplify our voices more authentically instead of trying to fake a different personality. Mm. Well, so how might students go about doing that? Like, I mean, if a student really wants to sort of analyze, start analyzing their own experience and figure out kind of why they're experiencing the difficulties that they are in, like, for example, in a legal education context, like what kind of factors might they look to? What kind of things might they think about? Like, what would be the kind of the the signs that they might use to figure out exactly why they're experiencing the kinds of problems that they are. So I strongly recommend a a two-step approach to reflection. So the book that I wrote is based on seven steps, but the first two steps are, are reflection, mental reflection. So what is the mental soundtrack that we have going on when we're either anticipating a scenario which might give us a little bit of trouble or we're in that scenario? We get cold called in class. Okay, what is the mental soundtrack that we're hearing? And it's it's really amazing when we can, when students, and I, I do this all the time, when I stop and listen, okay, what am I telling myself that's probably not true about my abilities in this moment? So there's the mental reflection piece, which I can explain a little bit more about. But for me, the physicality of, of my introversion, but also my shyness and social anxiety is a huge factor in my So physically, I can feel <laughs> the, the barriers to my performance. I have, I write about in the book that I have a very robust blushing response. So in class, when I was cold called, my face would turn bright red. And in depositions for 15 years, literally, I would get nervous in a deposition and my face would turn bright red. And, and, and then that would send me on this completely you know, bad path to feel like 
someone's looking at me and judging me. So it's really important for students in, in my assessment to mental reflection. What are we telling ourselves in our brains about our ability to perform in class or perform in a, in a simulated performance scenario? And is that information accurate? Are we really not as smart as everybody? No, of course, we're, we're prepared. We know this stuff. We just need to learn how to amplify our voices better in certain scenarios. Same physically. We have a physical inventory. For me, I realized when the blushing thing would kick in, I also, my body would try to protect itself. Like I, I was preparing for a fight or I needed to pr protect itself from a threat. So I tend to fold inward. I cross my arms, I cross my legs, my body's instinctively trying to protect me and get small, but that doesn't help me breathe. It doesn't help my energy and blood flow in a productive manner and everything just kind of devolves from there. So my advice for students is really reflect and take notice and, and be very conscious of what we're telling ourselves mentally, but also what we're doing physically that might not be very conducive to our best performance. And then we make changes from there. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of identify in some sense exactly what you're reacting to and what's causing these kinds of these kinds of problems or, or kind of these emotional responses, as it were, as a way of kind of figuring out what you need to address to sort of make yourself able to function in a particular social circumstance? Absolutely. And for me, it, I needed to reject a lot of the advice and or set aside, um, you know, be appreciative for all the advice I've gotten over the years, but finally say, okay, advice like fake it till you make it or just do it or just practice. None of that advice, I tried all of that for decades, quite honestly, and none of that worked for me. It wasn't until I started letting go of all that advice, you know, saying to myself, no, I don't really need to fake extroversion. I don't need to mirror the behavior of some of the, the tougher personalities that I dealt with over the decades that I practiced construction law. I don't need to be like that to be a good lawyer, but I need to really get to know myself and understand what not so helpful mental messages I tell myself all the time and also some not so helpful physical, natural, instinctive, automatic reactions to stress that I experience. But what are those things that aren't so helpful? And then what can I concretely do about it? And, and once we realize that, that we can control this and we can set ourselves up for tremendous success in the classroom, but also in lawyering scenarios, it's really amazing how we can change our whole approach. For many years, I, I sort of absorbed messages like, well, why'd you go into litigation if you have public speaking anxiety? Or, you know, maybe you should just go be a transactional attorney, or maybe you're not cut out for the law. None of that was true. And, and by the way, being a transactional lawyer also requires a lot of public speaking. So that kind of advice, I fear that a lot of our quieter students hear that and internalize that as well. But I strongly believe that every single one of our students can excel as an attorney by letting some of these messages that we, we hear and, and maybe we reinforce, um, not unnecessarily, 
and instead really talk about this stuff out loud and say, we can all be great at this in our own way if we take a look at our mental and physical techniques and then make some adjustments so we can step into performance scenarios with fortitude. Mm. Well, so in the book, you distinguish or you sort of contrast the sort of idea of just do it with the idea of just be it. And I wonder if you could talk about what you mean by that and, you know, how just be it is sort of a different idea and why you think it's better suited to the needs that introverted people have in relation to succeeding in these kinds of social contexts. So just do it. The Nike slogan is certainly one of the most motivational athletic slogans of all time. I mean, I'm sitting here right now wearing a pair of Nike boxing shoes. So I I appreciate the message behind the just do it mentality. But speaking from personal experience, I tried to just do it. In in law school, I threw myself into trial advocacy classes. I, I tried to keep putting myself in situations where if advice I heard was true, if I just kept doing it, eventually the nerves would go away. But I tried that for decades and it didn't work. The only thing that finally worked was, sounds cliche, but being myself and realizing that I could be an incredibly impactful lawyer and teacher by being exactly who I am and and being open and honest about who I am and understanding that, yes, there are things I really do need to work on, but I need to learn how to work on them so I can be a good communicator. And for me, it's all about understanding through the reflective pieces that I mentioned, being really open and vulnerable and able to look at mental soundtrack, trying to pinpoint where that came from over the years. There's this great book I read by a woman named Ivy Neistat called Speak Without Fear. It's her book. And I read in her book that this isn't a blame game. We're not going to call up, you know, our high school coach or a teacher and say, oh, you ruined my life. But instead, for me, it was really important to understand where some of these unhelpful mental messages came from in my past and realize they have no relevance whatsoever to my current persona as a lawyer or a law professor. Once I was able to realize that I don't, I don't need to keep listening to that negativity, I can flip it upside down, be myself, but but also learn how to amplify my authentic voice when I need to be heard. It's still, frankly, a challenge for me every day. I I talk very openly in the book about how even speaking at faculty meetings, I still have nerves. I I blush. I, I turn red. My heart's beating really fast. But the beauty of the just be it approach is now I can realize it. I, I, I can honestly, in the moment, recognize, oh, this is just my fear again, but now I know what to tell myself and even how to sit in a chair or stand in a way that I'm, I'm maximizing my energy flow, my blood flow, my oxygen flow, so I can calm my racing heart. I can really feel like an athlete as I'm standing there and I can step into a performance moment and do my best. It's, it's not always perfect. And I tell my students that as well. You know, I, I struggle with this or grapple with this on a daily basis, but I know that I can do the best job I possibly can if I apply some of these techniques 
Whereas just doing it over and over like I used to is never going to work for me. Mm. Well, so in the book, you provide an entire kind of program that students and lawyers can use to sort of identify, think about, and help themselves manage the kinds of um, difficulties in certain social situations that we've been talking about. I wonder if you could kind of just really briefly kind of talk about, you know, that program, how you conceptualized it, why you think it's effective. I mean, I'm assuming personal experience is part of it. Um, And also maybe briefly about some of the sort of practical exercises that you included in the book for people to kind of help themselves reflect on the kind of mental states that you're identifying? As I was writing the book, I I put together this seven-step program so that I could work on myself first. And then, but I also wanted to make sure I could work on myself so then I was able to, to help other students. And the way this manifested was in, in the spring of most uh, academic years in the various schools where I've taught, every student was doing their first oral argument. And so I, I put together these, these steps and these exercises into these workshops to help students who were afraid of doing their first oral argument. And so it, it manifested or crystallized into these seven steps. So I mentioned the first two steps, which are the reflective piece, really analyzing step-by-step step what we're telling ourselves when we're anticipating a, a scary moment in law school or law practice, what we're doing physically. So step one and two is the mental and physical reflection. But then we take action. We, we set up really a step-by-step protocol or routine, just like an athlete would when they step up to the, the plate in a baseball game or the ring as a boxer or the gymnast approaching a balance beam. You know, what are we going to tell ourselves mentally as we're approaching that event? And what are we going to do physically that's different from everything we've ever done before? And so that's the first four steps, the mental and physical reflection, the mental and physical action plan. And then we take sort of a, a pre-game and game day approach. So, so, um, so step five, I learned from all the literature that I read through, is this concept of exposure. When I first heard about exposure theory in the psychology literature, I thought that sounds too much like just do it. Just expose ourselves to these events and eventually we'll be fine. But exposure is really different in this context. It's about intentionally stepping into these scenarios now armed with our new mental and physical action plan. And this could be raising your hand in class. This could be going to office hours for a a somewhat intimidating law professor. This could be doing an oral argument. But we approach each of these exposure events now armed with our action plan. Step six is having the pregame and game day plan. And then step seven is after each exposure event, reflecting on how things went and adjusting what we can do going forward. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, I wonder, like, practically speaking, from the perspective of a law professor, um, like, what can I do to kind of facilitate these kinds of these kinds of needs in students who might be struggling for, you know, one of these different reasons related to introversion. Um, 
And then I guess from the student's perspective, what can students do to kind of convey their needs to law professors? In other words, like how can we kind of reach a meeting of the minds, as it were, as to what's going to make the learning experience most productive and and mutually beneficial? For educators to be open-minded about this, I think would be a wonderful, wonderful step. And to talk openly, whether that's in your first class of of the new semester, to say, look, I know that speaking in class is going to be scarier for some of you than others. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're not cut out for this and you don't deserve to be here. I've seen some incredible syllabus language around this, and I'm happy to share with anybody who's eager to try this. There's some great syllabus language around talking about how different students bring different skills and, and assets and strengths to the classroom experience, but we, we all bring something incredible to the dialogue of the classroom. But it might take some students longer than others to tap into their advocacy voices, and that's okay. So saying that kind of stuff out loud as the, as the educator, as the classroom leader, either the first class, definitely in the syllabus, so students can understand that, that this particular pr- professor is open to growth and helping the student really develop their advocacy voice. And then also really listening when students do take that brave step of coming to office hours or sending that email to say, look, I'm really nervous to speak in class, encouraging the student not to take a pass. So my whole platform is I don't want students to opt out of participation because they're afraid. I want them to learn how to do it. But for people like me, the the cold calling and the, the just do it mentality would never help me grow. I needed to learn first the, the nuts and bolts of, of what was driving my, my hesitance and my, my fear and then adopt these mental and physical techniques for getting better at it. So I think as much as professors can can state the issue out loud, make it clear they're going to be open-minded about working with the student to develop these, these skills and, and being really good listeners to our students when they do take that sometimes scary step of coming to us and saying, look, I'm afraid, but I want to be here. I'm excited about the law. I, I'm doing the work. I just get nervous and, or I'm introverted and I need more time to process information. Here's how I'd like to show you that I'm doing the work. Open-mindedness, conversation, dialogue, empathy, all those are just great ways that we can help students understand that we need them in our profession and we're here to help them amplify their voices authentically. Hmm. Well, so Heidi, I mean, in closing, it really struck me reading your book and thinking about it that, I mean, you provide a really, I think, thoughtful discussion of what it's like to be an introverted person in the legal profession and how introverted people can help themselves succeed in law school and as lawyers, et cetera. Um, but I, I just can't help but wonder, like, I mean, doesn't at least some of this suggest that law schools and the legal profession should do more to think about what it's actually trying to accomplish and how we're doing what we do and why we seem to sort of 
prioritize one mode of thinking over another. I mean, a lot of the values you describe in the books, honestly, sound like ones that are really important and valuable to good lawyering, at least as I understand it. And if we're encouraging people to kind of de-emphasize those at, you know, at, in, in favor of values associated with extroversion, that seems like a real problem to me. It is a real problem. And, and if we continue to overlook some of these strengths that quieter folks bring to our profession, we're really missing out. We're, we're going to continue to miss out on incredible voices. And, and we're also contributing to unhealthy behavior. I, I write very openly in the book about how for honestly two decades, it was very challenging from a well-being perspective to feel like I needed to fake a different persona as a litigator. And I wish I could go back and redo all those depositions and interactions with people I worked with by, by taking the initiative to say, look, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing the work, but you need to let me do it in my way. And, and believe me, you'll get much better results. But I didn't have the strength to do that back then. I think we, we as, as an educational community and as a profession need to realize that business as usual isn't necessarily the best way to go. And especially with everything we've all been going through with this pandemic and teaching online and having individuals working from home, I'm, I'm still seeing some of the same behavior reinforced about cold calling and things like that. And we're just not being as creative as we possibly could be with allowing our quieter students and our quieter employees to participate in creative, novel ways that are really going to improve our profession. So I would like to see us just be open-minded about the assets that quiet individuals bring to our profession and give them a platform to speak when they're ready because the ideas they bring to the table are really remarkable and could really change our profession forever. Well, Heidi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I got a lot out of your book. I hope uh, listeners will get a sense of what you're doing. And I can't help but believe that for a lot of people, it'll be a really helpful book to check out themselves. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm shy, so shy. I spend my evenings all alone on the porch. Shy, I'm so shy. It isn't easy when you.
torch, shine, oh so shine. Someday I'm bound to meet her accidentally, then I'll have no alibi. But till then I'll sit alone and torch on the porch, cause I'm shy, so shy. Someday I'm bound to meet her accidentally Then I have no alibi Till then I'll sit alone and torch on the porch Cause I'm shy, so shy I spend my evenings all alone on the porch Shy, so shy It isn't easy when you carry a torch Shy, so shy Tonight our arms are locked in someone else's Wish I were the lucky guy But till then I'll sit alone and torch on the porch Cause I'm shy, so shy Cause I'm shy, so shy